Good morning, good morning. Welcome, welcome. We are so excited to worship with you today to open the scriptures together. Welcome, as, as Shelby already said, welcome to AJC if you're new. Uh, we'd love to see you, meet you, say hi to you. We'll be standing at the door, as she mentioned. Um, we are going to be doing a Bible study, though, this morning. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and throw a hand up in the air. One of the ushers around the room would love to get a Bible to you. If you don't have one, you're welcome to keep this one from us. Uh, when you get your Bible or when you get your phone out or whatever, we're going to be looking at Psalms today. So I'll flip open to Psalm 86. So literally, like for most Bibles, it's like right in the middle. Like it's in the middle of the middle. Psalm 86 is what we're going to be looking at today. Seems like summer has finally come. For those of us Oregonians that were kind of waiting, it seemed like it was like on and on. Is it going to happen? No, it's going to happen. Sweet. Yeah, it happened. I think we're going to get over 80 today. It's going to be a beautiful day. Can I get an amen? Yes. Okay. We are thrilled in uh, the summer to be jumping into our new summer series uh, on worship that we've entitled Undivided. More than just kind of enhancing our Sunday experience, we're really excited about exploring the why and the what and the how of worship as it relates to like our created purpose. Followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years have tried, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, uh, to put words behind why it is that God created Adam and Eve in the first place. From, from living as expressions of his being to carrying his mission into the world, all of them seem to be summed up in the idea of worship. Humans were created to worship. Augustine, uh, a North African ancient church father, put it this way. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. We were not only created for, for praise or for worship. Augustine says that we actually find joy and purpose and rest when we do that thing that we were created for. We were formed for God. And as we give ourselves back to God in worship, um, we find that peace and that rest that we've been longing for. Over 1,200 years later, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is like an Anglican formation tool <clears throat> developed in Britain to bring Christians kind of into the family of God, it would boldly answer the same question this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So not just for God, but also for our eternal joy. Like it's all wrapped up in worship. Our final state will be one of enjoying God's presence and glorifying him forever. And again, another almost 400 years later, Sandra Maria Opstel, she's a Latina author, theologian, activist. She wrote this, to worship is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of the gathered community. It is breaking into the Shekinah glory of God, or better yet, being invaded by the Shekinah glory of God. What a great quote. Sandra Maria says it's, it's communal. It's not just a me moment, it's a we moment. We come together in our diversity to encounter this unified and unifying presence, this Shekinah glory. We are here 
hands open to meet with him, not to like work ourselves up, but to actually wait for him to come down and meet with us, encounter us. This, this is worship. Or the psalmist, King David, he would put it this way. Would you please rise as I read this scripture text out over us from, from Psalm 86. Psalm 86, starting in verse eight, says this. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All of the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. We wait for you. Lord, we acknowledge our need for you. We come to you, our creator, and we would ask that you would make us and mold us into the beings that you created us to be. Forgive us for giving our worship to another. We repent of our idols and we come back to you, the source of life, of rest, of joy. Thank you for your unending grace. We just invite you to be our teacher this morning, Lord. We long to hear from you. So open this text, open our hearts, and do something that only you can do. Transform us. We love you, Jesus. This is all about you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. So if worship is what we were created for, and it's actually like core to our being, it begs the question, what exactly is worship? And how do we know how we're doing it right versus when we're just kind of going through some religious motions? To, to get clarity on that question, I would like to start with another question. What is the most beautiful thing you have recently seen? What is the most beautiful thing you have recently seen? Like, take your breath away, stop you in your tracks, gorgeous. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about it. Now's your time, men. I just teed you up. Just go ahead and make that well-placed nudge. Seriously, though, seriously, though, I, I remember a number of years back, I, my dad invited me and my brother-in-law to go spay fishing up in northern Canada on the Skeena River. Um, and we were fishing for steelhead. And for any of those out there who aren't really fishing types, um, steelhead is kind of like fishing for like small underwater trains. Um, when they get your hook, they, get, they, they take your shoulder as well. Like they're, they're super powerful. Uh, but it's a lot of fun and it's a great adventure. Anyway, we, 
we needed to get up super early. We flew up there and it was, you know, oh, dark. We got in the boat. I mean, it, you could barely see anything. And the guy took us down the river out to this really remote, you know, fishing spot. And the light was starting to warm up around us. But, but honestly, you know, you're just, it's early and you're trying to put your waders on. And these, fr- these fly rods are like ginormous. And so you're like, you're like kind of stumbling out into the freezing cold glacier water with your giant fishing rods and it's dark. And you just begin this kind of motion and the spay motions, this very like rhythmic kind of motion that you do and you, you fish. Well, in the midst of that, in the midst of that moment, the sun managed to crack its way up between these two mountains. And it was like, it was like the glory of God just suddenly broke down this valley. And I don't know how else to describe it. Like, as the sun just started hitting everything around us, there was a mist coming up off of the river, and and it was just this beautiful sound and gorgeous, like trees and mountains with snow on top of them. There's literally an eagle circling in the air, and, and I kid you not, a red fox scrambling up on the rocky shore on the opposite side. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. Eden-like, you know? Uh, and and it was completely take your breath away stunning i remember in the moment as i was doing that literally having tears come to my eyes i had never seen anything quite so breathtakingly beautiful i took pictures but they just didn't do it justice like they never do it was no words so what's your memory i want i want you to kind of hold it in your mind for a moment maybe it's like that time you visited the Grand Canyon or Mount Hood on a snowy day, that's beautiful. Maybe it was the birth of your little girl. You know, maybe, maybe it was that moment of you standing at the end of the aisle on your wedding day. What kind of feelings and thoughts does that moment bring up for you as you reflect on it, as you think about it? Well, N.T. Wright in his book, For All God's Worth, he gives his answer to that question, and it's this. He says, it enriches you. It makes, it warms you on the inside. It makes you more alive. It makes you stronger. It makes you perhaps a little humble. You didn't cause this beauty. You didn't make it happen. It just happened and it happened to you. And what does this beauty call out in you? Gratitude, delight, a sense of awe, a sense of longing for something beyond just out of your reach an experience that we might call worship. Now, of course, as followers of Jesus, we're called to give our worship to God alone, but there are good experiences in this world that kind of bring us to the cusp or the edge of worship because they, they invoke inside of us like celebration and joy and life. And it's why it's, it's why it's appropriate to honor artists or to give your compliments to the chef or draw attention to something that's really beautiful. And it's why it's okay that, we, that we erupt in joy when our favorite team finally scores. Like th- those are all moments that are beautiful and, and they give us a glimpse into what worship looks like. And they're very appropriate. The danger comes, of course, when they move from seeing, like from simply being things that we declare as valuable past that edge, past that cusp, and they become objects of our worship. And that has proven especially difficult for us humans because we're hardwired for worship. Like, 
As we mentioned, it's kind of at the center of our being. We're naturally bent towards declaring the worth of things that we find valuable. And when our worship gets spread out like too little butter over too much toast, there's a few people know where that quote comes from, we begin to fragment. But when we bring our worship as we were made to God and to God alone, a surprising thing can happen. We experience the filling, the wholeness, and the life that his spirit can bring to us. We can find healing in worship. So as we begin this journey of this next 11 weeks together as a family, I want to be super clear with our intent to, to not bury the lead, so to speak. Our goals are this. We, we want to bring clarity to what worship is and what it isn't. And we want to look at some men and women from the scriptures who model for us the core, those core aspects of a worshiping life. And we want to give practices that we can take beyond Sunday into our like everyday experience and to fan that flame of worship in each of our hearts. We're going to build the foundation of this series on this premise. We were created for wholehearted, undivided worship. And as we encounter God's presence, his inbreaking beauty of his Shekinah glory through his Holy Spirit, as we encounter that presence, we are formed or reformed, restored into his image. And we reflect his creative power and purpose in worship to all of creation. We were created for wholehearted, undivided worship. And as we encounter God's presence, we're formed into his image and we reflect his creative power and purpose in our worship. As I mentioned last week while wrapping up our series on becoming like Jesus, we live in an anxiety-ridden, entertainment-driven, consumeristic, distracted time. Never has there been more things to compete for our attention. Never has there been more things to compete for our worship. Which is why it's so important that we bring clarity to what we mean by worship and, and provide a bit of a roadmap to, to kind of help navigate our calling to worship God alone in an age of idols. So to do that, I'd like to take a closer look at Psalm 86. So let's take a look at Psalm 86, and we're going to start in verse 8. Verse 8, Psalm 86 says this, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. After declaring his absolute need for and dependence on God in the first seven verses, David entrusts himself to Yahweh. He throws himself on God's mercy, knowing that God is trustworthy and will answer his servant. This, this emboldens David, leading him to exclaim that among the little g-gods, among all the other like competing voices and kings, none compares to the Lord. God is unique and everything he does is matchless. As Francis Chan put it, isn't it comforting to know that we worship a God that we cannot exaggerate? He's just that big. There's something about God's nature that sets him apart. The biblical word for that is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. 
And we sometimes confuse ideas of like holiness with righteousness and purity. And there certainly is a ton of overlap. They're definitely linked. But holiness by definition simply means he is completely other. We're gonna spend more time in the weeks ahead unpacking this idea of holiness. It's at, it truly is at the essence of true worship when we come to God, this God who is utterly unique. There's only one of God in the entire universe. Even in his triunity, he is still undividably and completely unique. And it's that foundation that sets up so much of the text around worship in the scriptures. God is unique and one. And when he moves in power, there is no one like our God. There is no one. There is no one. Isaiah ex- explains that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And all the other gods are lesser beings who are not worthy. They don't compare to the Lord of all. David continues in verse 9. All of the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and you do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. We see that worship is not just an experience that we have here on Sunday mornings, you know, where Christians kind of come together and we do that Bible-based karaoke thing that we do. No, it's way bigger than that. It's connected to allegiance. It's connected to authority. It involves acknowledging that God is both creator and king. And when we come with our worship, whether in song or word or action, it is a, it's powerfully declarative. It makes a statement about who it is that we are entrusting ourselves to, who we deem as reliable, able to carry us through the difficult times, who we believe is truly great. The word marvelous in verse 10 can also be translated wondrous, which is a great word. And it carries with it this idea of awe and holy fear. God's deeds are truly awesome in the literal sense of the word. So powerful, so beautiful that they strike fear and awe into the hearts of those who worship him. I'm reminded of a time that I visited this really sketchy zoo outside of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, It was a converted ranch, okay? So it had been a ranch, and this zoo had kind of taken upon itself to take in animals that had either been like they'd failed out of other zoos or zoos that had closed down, and they could no longer house these animals. And so here they were out on a ranch behind like chain link fences, okay? I mean, it was one part rescue and one part really sad, okay? And all sorts of animals, bears and African deer and wild dogs and this very old lion, all held in, again, by chain link fences, okay? Imagine this, okay? I remember turning the corner at one point and finding myself within like less than five feet of the largest lion that I had ever seen. I mean, I've been to zoos all over the place. I have never seen a lion this big. It was monstrous. It had one of those giant manes that wrapped all the way around its body, and it was just sitting there looking at me. And I'm like, I I mean, I I froze. I mean, it was majestic. You could could see the muscles rippling. It was old, but you could just see how powerful it is, these giant eyes, and it was just watching me. And I literally, it took me, I was taken in, like, 
It was so beautiful. I don't know if anybody here has been that close to a lion before. It was so beautiful. So I just looked at it. And after a little while, I was like, well, I got to go check out all the other sad animals. So I turned my back to walk away. And right in that moment, I, I don't think it was done with me, it roared. And now you've probably been in a zoo when you've heard a lion roar before, but I wager you've never been less than five feet from a lion when it's roared at you. And I tell you what, my knees quaked, literally quaked. It, it almost took me to the ground. My heart was thundering. I, the part of me just wanted to make a run for it, but the other part of me was drawn in by his beauty, terrified by his power, drawn in by his beauty. Sometimes we need to be reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that awe is most certainly central to a right understanding of what it means to worship God, the God who created the lion, the God who created the orca, the God who created the T-Rex, the, the God who created the sun and space and everything in it. God is awesome. He's awesome and at times ferocious. And it would be wise for us, his children, to remind ourselves at times to allow more of that wonder, more of that awe, more of that fear to, to leak into our worship as we entrust ourselves to a father who loves us. David changes course. He makes a request of God in the midst of this like worship moment. He says in verse 11, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. And here's where we get to the heart of the matter. Literally, David asks God to teach him his way, specifically asking God to align his heart as a worshiper, to form the kind of habits to, and, the, and to lead him into the kind of dependence on God's faithfulness that would show that God is reliable. Like it's, it's all about God's ability to be true to himself, to, true to who God says he is, that David himself, like God, would be undivided. That word faithfulness, it's a bit complicated. There's actually like no one-to-one -one translation from the ancient Hebrew, the, the, the language that the Psalms was originally written in. And it carries with it a, a multitude of ideas, but, but some of the ideas are like around the idea of steadfastness and steadiness and trustworthiness. Something you can put your faith in it's like David is saying, God, he's like that beam that you, that you put to carry the weight of your house. We've got this beam in the one part of our house that literally holds up half of our house. It's like God is like that beam, able to carry the weight. Or, or God is like, he's like a trustworthy craftsman. He's been entrusted with the, you know, all of the money that he needs to build the temple. And nobody needs to make sure that God is gonna come through or carry on in his commitment. He's reliable, he's steady, he's faithful. So David asks God to teach him his ways so that he, so that David can be steady, stable, 
trustworthy, that David would first have an undivided heart. God would take the fragments of David's hearts, his distractions and his brokenness, and bring them together into a whole heart in the same way that God is one. But then second, that David would fear the name of the Lord, that he would continue to stand in awe and wonder of all that God is and does, that he would remain a wholehearted worshiper. But how? How is David going to step towards this undivided heart? How can he truly live with this awe and this wonder? The answer? Well, the answer from the text seems to be by practicing wholehearted worship. He will praise the Lord his God. He's going to lift up with all of his heart. He's going to glorify God's name forever. That's what he says. The difficulty is, is that we know David's story, don't we? And we know our story. Living undivided is something we wrestle with and have been wrestling with since leaving the garden. We know that our fragmented lives, are, it's not how we were created to be, but, but we don't know what to do about it. And, and, and the more we give ourselves to the worship of other gods, the more we fragment our souls. It's a lot like spreading our hearts out amongst multiple sexual partners. It's like it fractures us. It breaks us. We begin to become divided. Fortunate for us, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And his ways are high above our ways, remember? His thoughts, they're high above our thoughts. He is great and his deeds are marvelous. And he has walked with the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve since our inception. God has a plan. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20 says this. I will give them an undivided heart. God's like, I'm gonna give it to them. And I'm gonna put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and I'll give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, my family, and I will be their God. In chapter 11 of Ezekiel, the prophet, he receives this like devastating news. It's judgment on his people. It seems like God is gonna be entirely against Israel and that all hope is lost. Israel has abandoned God and now God, he's given them what they want. So Ezekiel cries out, Lord, is this it for us? Are we done? And responding to the prophet's question, God points to the future. A time when he would draw his people back to himself, when he would destroy the lesser gods, and a time when he would remake his family. The key, says God, to dealing with the fragmented, divided heart of my people is putting a new spirit in them, giving them a new heart. And so, some 600 years later, as the apostle Peter stands in front of this huge group of completely confused followers of Yahweh on Pentecost Sunday, the first Pentecost Sunday, trying to explain what had just happened in the upper room, wind, fire, the coming of the Holy Spirit on every single person, the very presence of the Holy God now living in every single person who would call upon the name of the Lord, God begins the work of knitting back together divided 
hearts from the inside. His very spirit taking a dead stone heart and resurrecting it, bringing life and unity and wholeness. God answers David's request from Psalm 86, but extends the gift to everyone who would ask. God himself does all the heavy lifting. He puts the undivided heart inside of us, but the question remains, how do we participate? How do we get on board? How do we give God our yes? I think the key lies in David's response. Notice that he asks God for an undivided heart so that he can worship rightly, but then he just worships anyways. Isn't that interesting? God, give me an undivided heart so I can worship rightly. And then he praises God's name. There's something here about the relationship between belief and action. It seems like there are times when our right actions, they come from our right beliefs, right? Like we know that God has called us to love that person who's sampling every single flavor in front of us at Salt and Straw, okay? Like we know God's called us to love that person. We check our hearts and say, this is what Jesus would do, right? So we patiently smile and we extend the kindness of Jesus knowing that we'll probably do the same thing they're doing, right? But then there are other times. There are other times when right beliefs follow right actions. Our heart and our mind, they're not there yet, but as we put God's truth into practice, our beliefs catch up. Sometimes right beliefs lead us to right action, and sometimes right actions lead us to right beliefs. In effect, the key to becoming an undivided, wholehearted worshiper is practicing worship. Even when our heart hasn't caught up yet, because often our practice leads our hearts and minds into the truth we're longing for. What's more, the scriptures actually suggest that practicing may in fact itself be the key to healing our broken and fragmented hearts. Now, I know in our day and age, we would label this kind of response as inauthentic, maybe even hypocritical. We perceive today that like good actions done for the wrong reasons is wrong. And this is partially because we don't like being told what to do. Let's be honest. And it's partially because we've placed our own feelings on the throne of our lives. We as a society have given our emotions the veto card for our everyday experiences. How we feel or think about any given situation ultimate has often has ultimate authority over our behaviors. In many ways, our feels have become little g-gods. Now, to be clear, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that emotions are bad or don't matter. I cry almost every single Sunday, so there's that. <laughs> what I am saying is that a part of worship is acknowledging the kingship and power of the Lord our God entrusting ourselves as David did to his matchless way, remembering that worship is connected to allegiance and authority 
And it involves me acknowledging God as creator and king. Our creator knows us better than we know ourselves. And that can be tough for us to swallow, but he does. And if he knows us, if he, if he knows how to bring us wholeness, why wouldn't we entrust him with our broken hearts? If he knows how to, if he's proven himself how to be faithful and we're looking for faithfulness, why wouldn't we entrust him with our fragmented minds? If he has truly sent his Holy Spirit to knit us back together from the inside out, why wouldn't we give him our yes? There are times when my own heart, it, it like goes to war against me. And my mind, it wrestles against me. It, it starts to lean towards unbelief, especially like maybe around God's provision. I just did the financial update. Times where fear and worry, they become like little G gods trying to steal God's worship from me. And I, and I can get stuck in these like problem-solving cycles. Maybe if I just do this or if I just did this, and then my own mind becomes another little G-God trying to rob God of his adoration. And these are the moments where right action can pave the way for right belief. These are the moments where I choose, even though my heart hasn't caught up, I make the decision to cast down the idols of fear and worry and self. And I say, he is steadfast. He is trustworthy. He is a God worthy of my undivided, wholehearted worship. A God that has placed his Holy Spirit in me. And he can resurrect my heart and actively knit those broken pieces back together. He can provide. He will be there. He is trustworthy. I can count on him. And so I bring God my worship first, believing that my heart and my mind will follow. And you know what happens? Nine times out of 10, it does. Fire descends again just like in Pentecost. And that flame, it flickers in my heart again and my heart engages again. Yes, this is my God. He's worthy. And he re-knits my heart together. And I worship God rightly as he deserves. So, what do we do with this practically? How do I translate this into Monday morning? And how do we move from like being divided in our worship to becoming more singular? What does it mean to like lay down idols and to worship undivided? And what about music? Like we didn't even mention singing. I didn't even mention singing this entire time. So essential to our, our worship experience. What's the role of music and art and worship? Why cathedrals? Why Gregorian chant? Why carved marveled statues? Why Geordie? I mean, Why? These are some of the, and I'm saying carved marble statues and Geordie, they're the same, they're the same. These are some of the amazing questions that we're gonna try to tackle in the weeks ahead. But for this week, I wanna leave you guys with two words, just two words, ask and consider. 
ask. This week, I want to encourage you to follow David's lead and humbly ask God to teach you his way, to teach you what it means to be a worshiper. And I want you to do this every single morning. Set an alarm for it if you have to. When you wake up in the morning, just before you even roll out of bed, like, Lord, today, teach me how to be the worshiper you want me to be today. And just align my heart to you, Jesus. And then the second word, the second word is the word consider. This week, at the end of every day, take a moment. Again, this can be like 30 seconds. Just take a moment to consider all of the ways that God has showed you that day, his greatness and his faithfulness every single evening. List, list out, like make a list of those moments of awe and wonder, these gifts that God has given you and say, thank you. Thank you, God, for these things that you've given me today. Ask and consider. Would you stand?